Leanne kept going, now on her own, watching for some sign to tell her where she was, but no signs appeared. She checked her watch, found she wasn't wearing one, tried the clock on the dash instead, 0835. Given that and the direction of the shadows, she realized she was pointed east, eastbound, in New Mexico. That was wrong. She slowed down, maybe not quite enough, and spun around in a Yui, fishtailing, but not wildly, and not a problem since her dad had taught her how to gently steer a fishtailing car way back when she was 10 or 11, and got herself pointed the opposite way. It was all about not fighting the fish, instead just playing it until things settled down. Thanks, Dad, she said, adding after 10 or 20 or 30 miles or so, I sang in my chains like the sea. Although possibly not allowed. She checked the dashboard clock, 0835. What had it been before? 0805, 0815? One or the other. She memorized 0835 and drove until she got tired. Then she pulled off to the side of the road and went to sleep. The lid twister in her head relaxed his grip a little. That was nice. And so was the air. She felt and breathed the air in her sleep. Nice western air. Until it changed for the worst. The wind blew across the village, picking up the smell of sanitation practices from another time. The coalition team came in on the run, boxing the village in from three directions. The Afghans from the north, airborne from the south, and Leanne and the rest of the special forces from the west, cutting off access to the track that led to the abandoned gas station and the only road out. Dogs didn't bark because there were no dogs. Neither were there sentries, meaning the villagers believed they had no enemies, which was unlikely, or they were simply incompetent, also unlikely, or it was something else, which turned out often to be the case on this deployment. Soon from the south side came some shouting, and a thud or two, and after that figures in loose-fitting clothing got herded by figures in form-fitting clothes. The moonlight sometimes reflected in a pair of eyes, and always shining on the breath clouds that rose from every mouth and melted in the sky. The women and children were all in one mud-brick house, whitewashed inside with a dark red woven flag on the floor and rug-covered benches lining three walls. The only light came from a smoky kerosene lantern hanging from a ceiling hook. Leanne stood in the doorway, weapon in hand, but not raised, with Katie, unarmed, waiting slightly behind her. How many you got, Sarge? Corporal Cranick called from outside. Too many for such a small space. That was the answer. Ten women, three kids, at least one baby, Leanne called back. Supposed to be eleven women. We got ten. Go back and confirm, Corporal. On my way, Sarge. Leanne didn't wait for confirmation. A female overcount could be bad. There was nothing to be feared from an undercount. She stepped forward and took off her helmet, the kind of thing no soldier would dream of doing in a situation like this, but essential to the CST purpose. She shook out her hair just long enough to be shaken out, and smiled. I'm an American soldier, she said, here to keep you and the children safe. Okay, Katie, 
Katie moved up beside her and repeated the message in Pashto. The women unveiled themselves, all except for two in the back. Leanne's weapon rose an inch or two almost by itself. Katie, what's going on? Katie pointed her finger at the two women who had kept their veils in place. She spoke to them in a tone that sounded harsh, irritated, and somehow upper class. The woman on the left bowed her head and replied in a low, hushed voice. She says that they have horrible scars, too shameful for a visitor to see. No go, Leanne said. I have to see. Katie spoke again, louder than before and with angry gestures. The woman on the left slowly lowered her veil. After the briefest glance, Leanne couldn't look again. The woman's face was an acid ruin. Nothing normal except for one dark eye 